Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. We love it when previous guests want to come back on and give us more gems of wisdom. Dr. Laurie Kerner has contacted us recently, wanted to come back on the podcast to talk us through some of the exciting developments happening in US education. Now, Laurie's been involved in establishing a culture of care in her district through developing trust, building relationships, introducing new initiatives, all with the child at the centre of her thoughts. It's great to have you back on, Laurie, and tell us more about what's been happening. So nice to be back. Thank you so much. Uh, good to see you. See, it's good to see you together, actually. Uh, so, you know, where should we start? It's been a lot of really good work over the last uh, year and a half since I saw you both. Um, just uh, taking care of the people that we serve. So I'm excited to, to talk more about that. Yeah, it was April 2021 in our last conversation. You were telling us about the new book that you had out. Um, and obviously, since then, you've been doing a lot of work around creating a culture of care. And I think that's going to be the main topic of today's conversation. Tell us about what a culture of care looks like in your school district. Um, well, I think uh, the, the, the first and foremost is relationships, right? So making sure that we um, take care of the people that we serve, make sure that we check in with them, especially especially now, Um you know, to see how they are, how their families are, what their emotions are like, what their health um, is like. Um, so we, we've, we've done a lot of really good work around that. Being in the buildings, we have seven schools. Um, and so I start my, my day every day in, in a different building, make my way around the district uh, to make sure that people see me uh, as a visual leader and have those informal conversations just checking in. That, that goes a really long way, doesn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. You know, we, Alan and I were talking about sort of different experiences of cultures and different, different models that you might sort of start to, to bring conversations back to around them. And I think everything that we talked about um, linked back to sort of a, a feeling of being connected or relatedness or relationships and they're undoubtedly important. And that must be a hell of a challenge across seven schools, Laurie. You haven't even got enough days in the week to get to get around them unless you're working <laughs> the weekends true. as well. <laughs> well, I do work on the weekends as well. Um, but certainly, you know, I'm not in the schools on the weekend. But I, I am making calls on the weekend to check in with our leaders um, and, and see how they're doing. Because there isn't enough time in, in, in the day uh, during the week. I was on the phone, you know, late last night with one of our teachers having a conversation about something. Um, so I, I think, you know, uh, following up and following through with what you say you're going to do is 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 what's most important, I think, for leaders to to remember. Um, you know, people will trust you if you if you mean what you say and say what you mean, and um, and and let them know who you are um, as a person. 
So uh, that that's at the core of, of everything that that I do. The the sort of walk in the talk part is, is what you mentioned. And I'm just thinking of logistics of seven schools. I think you mentioned a little bit earlier on before we press record, you've got over 6,000 students in that district and obviously hundreds of members of staff. How do you start learning their names, Laurie? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great question. I, I don't know. The first year, I it was um, just a, like a blur because I would see faces and I would try. But I think, you know, being in the schools every day, um, I don't think there's a day that goes by that I s- sit in the office all day. Um, and just seeing the same people over and over again, you just, you have to make that connection, you know, like, like when you're a child and you're studying for a test, right? And you use those little tricks to, uh, to connect facts to, uh, you know, definitions to words and things like that. So just by talking to them and, and, uh, and get really getting to know them, you, you learn their names. And, and so people say to me now, how do you know, you know, pretty much everybody in the district and, uh, I take great pride in that because it's important, isn't it? To, to know people's names. That's very important. So. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I remember the guest we had on, wasn't it? Who, who went and worked as a, as a get a volunteer in a prison and it was in South Africa and the prisoners were known as numbers. Um, and the only thing that they couldn't take away from them was their name. So the guy went in in his conscious effort to go and learn their names because that actually gave him so much more power and more mm-hmm. respect and that sense of belonging then that he actually knows my name. That's brilliant. And I think that goes a long way, doesn't it? Just learning names, getting to know the people is so important. It, it, I think it does. I mean, I didn't there. I'm, I'm new to a school this year. You know, I'm 12 weeks in. And one of the things I really enjoy doing is, is greeting students and, and, and saying good morning to them. Um, it's a wonderful way to start the day, but I, I'm always playing roulette because <laughs> I'll chuck a name out there if I'm not quite sure. Now and again, I'll get it right and the children <laughs> will feel great because, yeah, somebody knows my name and it's a personal connection. And then oftentimes also you play roulette and you lose, don't you? And you get that name wrong and you feel devastated for those few seconds and, you, and you're trying to pause with the child and be like, I'm really sorry, tell me your name again and you learn it and off you go from there. And it is literally a never-ending task. I remember <laughs> having a conversation with Alan in the first couple of weeks. You Obviously, when you start a new school, it's phased, isn't it? You meet the new staff first and you've got a cohort of your 20 or 30 new staff and you learn their names and you start to feel a bit more secure. And then you you, you meet all the other staff in your campus and, and you start to learn their names, but you're starting again from scratch and you only get that first chance to make first impressions and that counts. And you start to get on top of those names and then you do some work together as our five campuses and you and you, you, you meet hundreds of new staff from all these different campuses. And then at some stage along that line, you, you meet all the students and the 1600 students in the school. And then the next step from there is you meet their parents in a, a long winded way of saying, but you, 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 it is important that you make those first impressions and you learn those names and you get those first bits right, because that opens the door, doesn't it, Laurie? It does. And um I think it's so important to remember to uh, to say people's names during conversations with them. You know, mm-hmm. you know when you when you when you insert their names. I have a friend with me. My my cat is trying to get into our conversation. <laughs> What's your cat's name? <laughs> but when you're having conversations with people, to remember to say their names, right, Lewis? And look, there's her tail. I'm so sorry. I can't get rid of her today. Um, so I, and that helps to learn the names, uh, but it also, I think, is such a profound component 
of building the relationships. When you speak to someone and you continuously say their name, it, it just, it makes a difference. And, and I learned that from a mentor um, who I would chat with and, and she would say, that's right, Lori. I think we should, and it just, it, it sends a different message that you, you, you're invested, you know who you're speaking with, you, you know their name. So, so um, I really try to make sure that I do that all the time. And, and with the kids, you know, I have the same thing because we have so many students and I'm in the schools and I love when they say, I remember you, I know who you are. And I say, really, <laughs> thank you. Because it just validates, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that, you know, when you're in the district office, you're not with your kids every day, right? And so for them to know who you are, it, it really is so important and it is heartwarming. Um, but when you do make that mistake, and I've, I've done it too, and I've called some of our staff members, you know, by the wrong name, like similar to somebody else's. And I think it's so important that we say, I'm so sorry. I'm really trying to just learn everyone's name. And, and I, I just tell me one more time and I promise you that will never happen again. So. <laughs> There's a lot of that going on. I have to have a, I've got a PowerPoint slide with pictures and names on and, and, and it's something that I then come back to and continually refresh. It's almost like a little bit of retrieval practice where I go back to me, what's their name? And I, it's just, it just works at the start of a year. Same for the children. I've got the same for the children as well. That's fantastic. And it works, right? We have a new principal. He's phenomenal. And I was so impressed when I first met with him. And he has a chart, um, you know, on the wall, basically, yeah. with his staff names. And I think it's a brilliant way, um, you know, to, to practice and to learn who's who. Uh, it's not a positive affirmation, isn't it, basically? Yeah. It, it really makes a difference. And it does come back to, I, I'd like to define what culture is for our audience, if that's okay with you, Laurie. It's from, from a researcher called Stolpen Smith in 1995, and they talk about culture being how people feel about the organization, and it's the beliefs, the values, and the assumptions that provide the identity and set the standards of behavior. That's what culture is within an organization. And what I think it's there is it's feeling. That's the key word in there for me. It's how people feel about where they work how, how, how have you managed to promote that Laurie in terms of you've talked about relationships you've talked about their getting learning names and and greeting and and all the things that go with that but how do you really go about setting the culture so I've always said you know where there's excitement there's productivity and I I define culture as the way people feel on Sunday night ah nice yeah because if you have a stomachache on Sunday night and you're not excited about getting a new week, you know, going, um, that's a problem. So, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you shift culture? How do you make it a, a happy place? Um, and I, I don't want to, you know, beat relationships to death, but it, it really is the center of everything that we do. Um, and I think, you know, making sure that we're humanitarian first, um, rules, know which rules are made to be broken. You know, we have guidelines and policies and, and all of those really important uh, documents. Um, but once you get to know the people and you know what they need, making sure that you're, you're there to support them um, in, in their, their happiness or their productivity or their learning. Um, and so it's, it's, it's good work. It's, it's exhausting, um, but it's, it's so worthwhile because 
you know, with happy staff and, and excited staff, um, the children are the beneficiaries of all of that. And that's why we're here. We're here for kids. So, um, yeah. Now, sometimes when you're, um, when you're building culture um, and you're working with, let's say, NQTs or, or early career teachers, ECTs, who have had a limited sort of experience through their college and universities, you've got very much a blank slate there and you can create that feeling of, of having status, of, of being related to and being supported. That's a bit harder, isn't it, when you're coming into a school district, a school, a community where you've got people that might have been teaching 10, 15 years that carry some scar tissue based on their previous experiences. How how can you start to unpick and and, and heal that scar tissue and assure people they're in the right place and, and get them excited about work? Because it's, it's a big deal, that, isn't it, being excited on a Sunday night? It's one thing to say it. It's another to to really feel that and want that for all your staff. How, how do we start doing that with people whose experiences have been or may have been very, very difficult? Yeah, and I think we've all been there at some point as veterans, at some point in our career. Um, you know, that Sunday night feeling that, you know, I'm not really excited. Uh, so I think we have to look inside ourselves and think about, you know, well, what made me feel that way at that point in my career? You know, why, why was I folding my arms? Why was I... Um, reluctant to follow on or to do um, something. Uh, and I do love your analogy about scar tissue uh, because it is hard, isn't it, to, uh, to um, peel away at that. That scar tissue is pretty, pretty strong, isn't it? Um, and so it's a process, it's a process. And I think the most important thing that we need to do is, is be there, be visible, be in it, be a part of it, you know, we, we need to feel the pulse of each building and then the district as a whole um, and, and, and continue to inspire people and, and keep the smile on and let them know, you know, I, we're here for you, I'm here for you, whatever you need, and then follow through with those, those, uh, those promises. Um, but I think inspiration is really um, important we don't want to fall into the negativity. We want to say, thank you for sharing. I understand. I'm sorry you feel that way. How can I make it better? What would make you feel more comfortable, happier, uh, more productive, more supportive? So we have to ask questions. You're going, I, was, I was just coming by. I, I used to teach Lewis many, many years ago in a school. Imagine that. You, I think you used the term bottom knowledge upstairs. I was ready to put my hand up and say, I'm, I'm, I don't know if I'm quite a veteran. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an important thing because I was a, a fairly young teacher. I was like 23, 24. Lewis was a, a 15, 16-year-old then in, in, a, in a tough place in the UK. And that Sunday night feeling wasn't nice, I must admit. I didn't want to work on that Sunday morning. Uh, well, going to work on the Monday morning after the Sunday night. You were just counting down to the holidays, really. And, and that's me <laughs> honest now, all these years in, 20-odd years, 20-odd years later. And and I love that analogy you've just talked about. Is what made me feel that when I, I was just thinking about it for a moment. It wasn't me, by the way. <laughs> <It wasn't. laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. It's really hard to work on that. It's... It was, I suppose it was behaviour management at that point in, in your career where it was just really tough. You were just fighting fires. You weren't really 
having or thinking you had that much impact, but really you did. It was just on a different scale. You probably had a huge amount of impact, but you didn't see it that much until it's that expression of your plants. You don't see the trees that you plant. They, they, that might have happened 10 years later or something, but it's it's that process you talk about there, and it's that, if I'd had at that point leaders that just maybe took me to one side and, and said, you know what, you're doing a great job. Just hang in there. I know it's tough. But the situation, we didn't have that. And and I feel now from that experience of what you just said, it is, it's that empathetic ear, it's that asking the questions, it's that checking in that's so important. It, it might not have been able to solve the problems that I had, but it was just the empathy towards helping me find a better place. Do you get what I mean? I, I absolutely do. And now you're making me think too. Because um, when I felt like that um, at a few points in my career, I think too, it was because I didn't feel valued, right? I didn't feel like um, it mattered, right? Or maybe I was working, you know, what I thought was to the very, very best of my ability. And maybe I didn't think anyone noticed or that the children were, you know, um, um, you know, seeing how much I cared. And, and you're right, uh, you know, it wasn't until probably years later when, you know, I'm still connected with the, the children I taught from my first year 33 years ago. Yeah. And they come back and they say, but, but you know, when, when you said these things and when you did this thing, it, it stayed with me, you know, for, for all of these years. And, and same too for the leaders I was surrounded by. You know, it, I wish some of them would have said, you're doing a great hang in there. I know it's tough, or I see you're having a bad day. What can I do for you? Um, it's just you need to to have those those little check-ins. And that's for me that the difference between teaching in a state school in the UK and then moving internationally. Because I can honestly say I've never once internationally had that Sunday night feeling of not wanting to go into work. I've always been happy to go into work. So I'm now trying to think: Well, what's been the difference, really? And I think it is much more community in the international school setup because you are much more a unit than what you are in the state schools. So you have that sense of belonging. So you really have feel part of something that's bigger than yourself. And it's that community building component that you that you speak about that's so important. We, and we need to take time with our faculty and staff to build the community, right? And to build the relationships and the trust and the conversation. And then we need to do it too with our students and with our families. And that's the systems, that's the systems, um, you know, that we build a, as a school community um, to come together and make sure that, that uh, we're all working, you know, for the same reason on the same page. And, and, and not everyone's, you know, going to be on the same page at the same time. Uh, but to build that community, at least we have each other to lean on, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's that leaning on one another that you need, especially in an international context when you're away from family and maybe your strong bonds and friends from wherever you lived. And if if we're all taking a minute to share, I'm going to share what I think is the biggest difference um, from, from sort of a state school to an international school. I always felt, and I was a young teacher when I left the UK, I taught for about five, six years um, and, and had a, a middle leadership course. So I experienced teaching and middle leadership. And I always found that the sort of pressure that people felt for me came from a sort of feeling of uncertainty um, and a feeling of not really knowing what's expected. 
um, which has led me very much in, in, in the way that I, I try to lead is, is to make the basic expectations as simple as possible, you know, to, to try and make sure that people understand what the basic expectations are. Of course, to, to spark creativity and to create excitement and to let people lead autonomously in different areas, it needs to become more complex at some stage. But getting those simple things right and having clarity on things will allow us to move forwards. And sometimes that clarity might be um, an answer that people don't particularly like or particularly want. But at least there's clarity and a parameter for people to work in. I've found that the, the most difficult conversations I've ever had um, I've been on the receiving end of and also that I've led is where the expectation isn't known and it's ambiguous and it's cloudy and it's sort of perception and it's opinion and it's subjective. And I find those really difficult. It makes me remember a conversation we had with Jennifer Abrahams that... Mm -hmm. um, clarifying conversations. Yeah, clarifying conversations. This idea of if there is ambiguity, then it needs to be clarified and then there needs to be a line drawn under whatever it is that's happened. So moving forward, we know what the expectation is. And I think a lot of scar tissue comes from um, from from that side because of the idea of that we don't actually know what it is that's expected, and you're not really sure. And it it makes me think of David um, David Rock's scarf model. I nearly said David scarf. <laughs> would have been wrong. And about certainty and relatedness and status. We talked about names and how that gives you status, and it gives you some idea of, of feeling safe and certain about who you are and where you are. And the relatedness that comes with that. It'd be really interesting to hear from you, Laurie, how how you start to do that whilst following policies, whilst being very procedure-based across 6,000 students. You know, you're a huge unit what you do. How do you have that personability, yet at the same time make sure that there's some sort of um, clarity and, 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 dare I say, fairness to what you do? Yeah. <laughs> It's an important question. I, I agree with you. It's it's the clear, concise, transparent, ongoing communication, right? So it's phone calls, in-person visits, emails, um, family messages, you know, daily, weekly, um, as often as possible um, to make sure that everyone understands very clearly uh, where we are, where we need to be, what the expectations are, what the guidelines are. Um, and also to let people know if, if it's unclear to you, you know, share with me so I can clarify. And, I, and that goes back to the relationships. And, and is, isn't it funny? Because if people aren't comfortable with you, uh, then they won't ask for clarification or people are fearful um, of, you know, judgment or, or, or retaliation, um, you know, then they won't ask for clarification. So it's really important that we, you know, that we go back to those relationships. Um, and, and, you know, through my career, um, I have seen toxic leaders, right? Toxic situations. And, you know, you learn who you want to be and, and how you want to be um, as a leader, but you also learn what you don't want to be. Mm -hmm. and, and you see other people's downfalls and you learn from them. And, um, and so too, you know, if you do something and it doesn't go well, you have to be able to say, <laughs> That didn't really go very well, did it? Let's try again uh, together. Um, and just lastly, I, I think it's really important when we're establishing guidelines and procedures that we ask for input from the people that we serve. You know, how do you, how do you think this will work best? What do you think, you know, what do you think we should do here? And, and of course we have to make executive decisions and, and some of them are more difficult than others, but when people feel heard, 
um, regardless of the outcome and, and what, what the final determination is, they, they feel like they had a voice. Um, so I think that's so important for us to remember. I, we were talking off air, Laurie, weren't we, earlier about Lewis and I are in quite unique, similar but different situations. I'm very much in a new school, new culture. Lewis is into a school that's established over a number of years where there's an established culture. So you have a very different context there. And I've done a lot of work this year and with, with the leadership team on, on establishing clarity of vision. Because everything comes back to vision drives decision. And I just want to get your opinion on this. How, how important is it to, to establish right at the start where we're going and how we're going to get there? And also just ensuring that getting the right people on the bus, it's actually okay if you're not in line with that. It's okay. We can, we can mutually part and you can decide to move elsewhere where it's more suited to you. That's okay in an organisation. But I'm wondering how your take on that in, in your US situation. Yeah, so um, in, in my professional opinion, vision and mission are everything. Uh, they have to be clearly communicated and shared and referred to consistently. We created a five-year plan uh, with a, a new vision and mission. Um, and so everything we do goes back to that, that strategic plan. You know, how does it fit in the plan? Where does it fit in the plan? Um, does it fit in the plan? And if it doesn't, why doesn't it? Um, and, and should it be part of the plan? Uh, you know, not, not necessarily that we want to alter our original um, strategic plan, but, you know, times change and we do need to be flexible, don't we? And, and um, reevaluate um, our, our progress and our, our process um, as, as time goes on. So, so that's... I think part one of, um, of your question. Um, part two, when people aren't on the bus, you know, we, we have those tough conversations. First, we check in, um, you know, where are you with our vision and our mission and, and, and our processes? And if they're not aligned, you know, we want, we want to find out why, because it's important to hear different lenses and perceptions. Um, but ultimately, if, if you are not good for children, um, and if you are not good for um, the school community and society overall uh, for what, what we're doing, um, you know, we want to help you find a new home uh, that, that maybe suits you better. We, we don't want to see people fail, um, but certainly if they're not going to, to um, be a team player um, in the best interest of children, then, then maybe somewhere else is better suited for them. And, and that has happened. And, um, you know, and, and we, we hope for the best and we hope that people, you know, find happiness uh, where, where maybe it's better suited for them. You, you mentioned there not being a team player and, and maybe not being aligned with the mission and vision. What, what other characteristics are, uh, would you explain that create toxicity in, a, in an organisation? What are the other sort of things we can look at? Yeah, I, I think um, bureaucracy. I think, um, you know, uh, lack of humanitarianism. I think, um, you know, not being an active listener. Uh, these are all qualities that, that don't suit uh, people well. Mm -hmm. you, you need to be honest and loyal 
ethical and transparent. And, and most importantly, you need to love, love, love children. And, and that's the bottom line for me. If you love children and you're passionate, we can help you, you know? <laughs> we really can. <laughs> so. There's a lot there, let's just paraphrase. Maybe people who lack humanitarianism or are not active listeners. And then on the flip side, you want honest, loyal, transparent. You want people who love children, who are passionate. That's, a, that's an amazing wish list, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do you go about recruiting those people? What do you do in your recruitment processes that get you to sift out those non-negotiables and also get you to find the, the qualities that you want? It's such fun. So, you know, a huge part of my, my uh, job is the hiring process and then also retention of our employees. So, um, you know, our process, we screen candidates first to get a good feel of who they are. Um, if we feel that you know they they should be brought back for a committee interview. We we put together a committee with um, various stakeholders. We want everyone at the table. How do you um, screen and then, How do you screen? Pardon? How do you screen them? I screen them. We screen them. It depends. Sometimes it's the building principal. Sometimes we'll do it together. A director. You know, several uh, leaders generally will screen. Uh, just some informal conversation to kind of get to know people. We really want to get to know people. I think, you know, having people sit around the table and, and you know, throw questions uh, at, at a candidate is just so, um, it's just unreal. It's not authentic. Yeah. So, um, so when they come for the committee, we, we like to, to have a good time around the table and, and start off with some informal conversations, add in some very important questions to kind of you know, see where people are uh, along their journey and in their philosophy. Um, and, and then we, we usually bring them back again. Uh, and then the, the cabinet will have deeper, more, um, maybe uh, some, some more difficult conversations about uh, scenarios. Uh, and, and we really, you know, we want people to have a good time. And, and so the feedback I've, I've received over the last few years from candidates is, and, and employees, you know, that was the best interview, even whether they got the job or not. Yeah. That was the best interview I've ever, uh, I've ever been on because it was fun. So and then when people are having about, fun, so what's more that? Humans, more about getting good humans in than the yes, yes. first. Listen, we all know anyone can sit around the table and give you the right answers yeah. or what they think are the right answers. Yeah. But so too, then you put that person in a classroom um, and it might not transfer. And the opposite is true as well with the demo lessons, right? Sometimes, you know, um, people are fantastic in a demo lesson and then you put them around the table and ask them questions and they have stage fright that way with responding to. So you have to really vet uh, your candidates um, deeply and make sure that um, they're, they're, they're true. So I, I really do feel that getting to know them, you know, we have candy at the table, uh, it's just it's uh it's comfortable I think and 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 authentic and uh, it works it has worked I'm very proud of our uh, uh, retention rate of our new hires over the last four years that says a lot about our hiring process. Um, Laurie, and what, um, what would be a red flag, Laurie? When you were interviewing, what would be a red flag to you? You have to mention children. This is my advice to all uh, candidates. Okay, this is my formal advice to all candidates. You know, speak from the heart. <laughs> this, is, this is interviewing 101 with Laurie. Okay. 
<laughs> speak from the heart, um, you know, show your passion. Um, speak about children, please. Please speak about children uh, because that's, that's why we're here. Um, you know, red flags. <sighs> Sometimes people come off a little, I think they think we want to see their, um, their strict side, you know, that they, but and I don't want to see that at all. Um, because I, I, I spoke to you guys, I think last year about how, you know, the, the, the advice I received as a new teacher was, you know, don't smile, be strict and then start to soften. And I totally disagree. It, it blew up in my face the first week into my career, you know, so just, just be who you are. And, um, don't, don't try to come off as a, as a, a tough cookie or a tough person, just, you know, be authentic. Yeah. Is, um, authenticity is up there. There's something authenticity. Mm-hmm. A few times. And I wonder, you've got 6,000 students in your district, Laurie, how many, how many staff do you have in there as an approximate? About, about 1,100. So you've got 11. 1,100 different personalities and different individuals. And it's just made me think of, um, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of reading a, around a book I read a little while ago called The Chimp Paradox at the minute. It's a great book by a guy called Professor Stephen Peters. And it's got a truth of life in there, which is brilliant, that says, listen, out of every five people that you interact with, one person's going to really like you. Three people couldn't really care less. They can take you or leave you. And one person's going to really dislike you. One in five. One in five. Wow. wow. So I, I wonder with 1,100 people there and, <laughs> and the, the thousands of connotations and, and, and webs of. I don't like your statistics. <laughs> and those webs of interactions that people have. How, how do you keep the harmony? How does everybody buy into this shared belief of your mission and your vision and what you're working towards? Right. And that's a process too, isn't it? I, I would say, um, you know, I, I'm sure there are. Plenty of people who still have questions about the vision and philosophy, but what I have been told through my career is, you know, Lori, I might not agree with everything that you say or everything that you propose, um, but I know that your heart is with kids, and I know that the the decisions that you make are in in the best interest of children first, um, and so then they they tend to follow on, <clears throat> and that's the truth, and that that's the bottom line. We are currently um, in the process of uh, professionally developing our staff, all of our staff, um, in a culture of care uh, where restoration is at the core of everything that we do. So if you dislike me um, or if you disagree, uh, we come around the table and we have a, a restorative circle. And this is true for faculty, staff, students, and families. Um, and it's a really wonderful process of, of just listening um, and uh, trying to get a better understanding of each other doesn't mean we agree. Um, it doesn't mean that everyone will like, like us at the end of the session, but it definitely helps uh, in, in, you know, moving the district forward and, and doing our good work for kids. When, when does that um, discussion stop sort of um, being a, a, a discussion and in a debate club that just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going? Where, where is a line drawn? in that conversation. Right. So if you look into the research on, on restorative practices, 
um, there's a very clear process for how to um, host a restorative circle. And so we first establish community and then we establish the norms for the circle. And you know, you can't speak unless you have the speaking uh, stick in your hand. And so through this process over the last year and a half, our faculty and staff have learned um, these norms and these processes. And so because we're continuing to train um, and roll out the process, it's an, it's an ongoing uh, learning uh, situation, but it, it, it's, it cannot become a debate because of the norms that are established early on. So the, the norms are maybe in line with something like Nancy Klein's time to think sort of idea of you have a set amount of time uninterrupted to share your thoughts, get everything off your chest. You asked if there is anything more and then we move to the next person and there's some sort of mediator in that. Is, is, that, would, is that how that would work? It, it, it's very similar. So the circle host um, asks the question or the prompt or, or um, you know, revisits the, whatever situation might be at hand. And then everyone in the circle can choose to respond, um, or give their input, they can pass, they can choose to serve as an ear and not a speaker if they are not interested in becoming involved in the conversation. It's a very real and effective way to, um, to progress um, it, you know, in a school community. Um, but again, it's a process. And so we're about, a, we're about a year and a half in and we have core teams across our districts, about 50 people. And just yesterday we trained about 50 more um, and so they'll go through the formal training process. And so now we have these hundred seeds and they will turn key to their, um, their colleagues and teach their students and their families uh, the process of restoration and healing. And, and it, it also goes back to, you know, what do we do for children um, when, when their behaviors are not aligned with our expectations, right? And so Typically, and, and I think in an antiquated society, we suspend, they come back, and they repeat. Mm -hmm. And the cycle just continues. And so this, this restorative practice helps children, it helps us to help children get to the root of their, there's a reason behind every behavior. Mm -hmm. So what caused, what was the antecedent? What, what's causing this uh, behavior for you? Um, and then what can we do upon your return um, to help you not repeat this behavior. So we've added counselors, social workers, psychologists, um, instead of suspension, in-school suspension, we have restorative rooms where children go to during the day to have the counseling and work through, um, you know, whatever whatever is, is, is at the, the core of their, their behaviors. Tell us a little bit more, Laurie, about the idea of, um, I think it's a really lovely one, this restorative circle. I think, did you call them hosts? So you sort of, coach hosts they become a team of sort of restorative champions that then coach others how does how does those layers work we have a trainer um and she's an expert in restorative practices she used it through her entire career she was a, a former superintendent and so she's been our trainer for the last year and a half and so our um our faculty our core teams were tra trained for three full days and then I continue to work with them in the rollout of the restoration in each of their schools and departments. And then we just brought our trainer back again yesterday to check in with our core team. 
practice. Um, and then to begin training this other group of, of faculty and staff. So it's intensive um, and it, it's, it, it's just a really, really inspiring, empowering time for us um, to be able to learn this as a school community and, and, and to be able to help children learn how to speak, respond, listen, change the trajectory of their pathway. It, it's interesting because I remember doing this, nothing's new, no ideas are new, are they? That, that everything comes around in, in circles, to so to speak. There's a lady in the UK called Jenny Mosley, and Jenny Mosley's famous for doing circle time. And it's sort of morphed into now restorative practice where there's, there's a gentleman called Paul Dix who has wrote a great book about when the adults change, everything changes. Uh, and we've done a lot of work on this. So this conversation is fantastic. So we're just bringing in restorative practice in our school at the moment. And, and it's, we're talking about culture change. This is massive for a lot of teachers who are still in the mindset of a child does something wrong, therefore they must get a detention and they sit in isolation for 15 minutes. We're trying to get away from this culture of know that that has no effect whatsoever and the restorative conversation that you should be having with them is the power of it and, and we don't the word punishment in itself just doesn't work and statistics show doesn't it if students get excluded they have got an extremely high likelihood of then going to jail down the line even the i know the jails in the u.s their statistics they build jails based upon exclusion statistics crazy crazy stuff. that's right mm -hmm. but just to bring it back round there, it comes back to change of culture. How can we change the, the mindset of teachers who are still in that concept of children do something wrong, we need to punish them, to bring them round to restorative justice? That's a real challenge, isn't it? It is. It really is. And, and so there's a difference between punishment and discipline, right? So that's the first, you know, um, that's the first part. And, and I think that ongoing professional development and conversations with faculty and staff, um, you know, not to preach, but to, to have conversations around exactly what you just said. Um, you know, does, does, do, does restoration mean that, you know, discipline goes out the window? No, it's progressive discipline though. And we do need to make sure, and, and children, you know, they need to be held accountable for their actions, absolutely. But we need to make sure that the, the discipline, I'm not even gonna use the word punishment because I hate that word, um, but that the discipline meets the infraction, right? So when I was a new teacher, <laughs> 30, 30, almost 34 years ago, if a child didn't do his or her homework, I made them sit recess. And I thought that was brilliant, you know? And I, I, I'm so angry with myself now, but I used to say to them, well, you didn't do your homework last night. And so now when your friends are playing, you're going to do your homework. And fast forward 30 whatever years, that was probably, I'm so sorry, uh, children from the 90s. I'm sorry that I did that to you because it makes no sense. And so the response should be, hey, uh, Lewis, I see that you, you, know, you didn't do your homework last night. Let's talk about it. Like, what does that look like for you at home? Yeah. And what was the reason? And do you need assistance? And, and were you taking care of your siblings? Or did you not understand? Or do you not feel valued? Or do you, you know, what's the problem? So yeah. there's so much more that we need to be doing for children, especially now. Um, 
and and then you know if 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 there needs to be a discipline in place then then we you know we 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 make sure that happens through conversation yeah um, and and i think it's important to ask ask the students what and do you think not the why question i when when a student does something wrong we the first thing we 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 sort of automatically why have you done that well that it just doesn't work <laughs> If I knew why I did it, I wouldn't have done it. Just drop the wine. Well, what happened? Right. What was the impact? You know, having a having a script there that teachers can use. And and and, and 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 restoration, restorative practices too, is not just circles. It's the way we speak to children. It is those we our staff has um in their badge um, their little cards, and it's the questions that you just mentioned you know, tell me what happened. Um, how did you feel at that moment? How do you think the other person felt? What do you think the out? So this is this process of how we speak to children, what the, the language that we use, the common language that we use across our schools. Um, and so it is such an important component of, uh, you know, that culture of care and shifting, shifting culture. So I've, um, I, I think you, for me, I'm starting to link that to this idea of sort of transactional relationships and the knock-on impact that that has on self-regulation. I think we're trying to encourage children to self-regulate and to control their emotions and their behaviours, which we know as adults is very difficult to do anyway. So we know we're asking children to do something that's quite difficult. But I think maybe we make a rod for our own back when we make the decisions that they make transactional. So, for example, if they do something well, it's an extrinsic reward. If they do something not so good, it is a punishment or a, some sort of discipline action that then annoys or frustrates that student when all that student really wants is to be listened to. So we can actually start to work out their thought process leading into that event and where maybe they could have regulated better. Do you think we sort of feed the beast with transactional relationships? Do we make a rod for our own back as teachers? I, I think that historically uh, that that's how it's been. And so I, I'm <clears throat> so dedicated to making this change, this positive, sustainable change in, in our education systems globally, which is why I'm always happy for us to connect, you know, that global connection. Um, but what a difference it would be if we just, you know, it's the smallest shifts that make the biggest difference, right? So if a child comes to school late, there's obviously a reason whether it's he didn't set his alarm or she didn't set her alarm or if there was an issue at home or a stomach ache or you know some type of physical so they come to school right we slap a late pass you know in their hand and we we send them off and then they they get to class late teacher says why are you late so so what if we shifted and when they come we say thanks thanks so much for being here today i'm i'm so glad you're here so glad you made it is there anything I could do to help you get here a little earlier tomorrow or on time tomorrow? It's shifting the language and, and celebrating that they, they showed up, they made it, they could have. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do and, and shifting mindsets is not easy. But I think when teachers start to see the results of the shifts, the positive results, they start to slowly buy in. And they start to, to dabble in those practices. That's been my experience um, over the years. Seems like you're talking about their a sort of kindness, but with accountability. 
you know, this idea, and I think you've almost said it, maybe not so many words, but we're, we're teachers, we're not disciplinarians, we're not police officers, we're not prison officers, we're not there just to follow a system of good behaviour here, bad behaviour here. But actually, it all comes back to the first thing that you said when we asked you what was important in a culture of change. And it all starts with the relationships that you have with the students that are in your care. And if you haven't got a relationship of respect, the, of agency, of understanding and of empathy, then you're always going to be up against it. Yeah, and, and the same goes true for adults, doesn't it? You know, like when you're you're running late for work because something happened. There's a reason behind adult behavior too. And if you're driving to work and you're, you're feeling anxious and, oh my goodness, you know, this person's going to feel this way when I get to work. We need to build the, that, the, the relationships across the board so that I can call and say, listen, <laughs> I'm running late. It, it, it happens or, or this situation. Oh, no problem. You know, drive safe. That's what we say. Take your time, be safe, no worries. And it's adult response. Yeah. yeah. And so we should too be saying that to our students, like, listen, I, I, I need you to get here on time because it's important for me to have that time with you uh, so that you can, you know, reach your, your maximum uh, potential. Um, but I see that you're having some, some, you know, a little bit of a, a, um, a delay in the morning. I try not to use the word challenge or difficulty, right? Because those are negative words. Um, but what can I do to, to help you? What do you need? How can we work together? And that, there's the agency and the voice. So. Can, can I just circle back? I've got notes here, Laurie, on... on Writing a book? Michael Fullen, <laughs> uh, Michael Fullen and John Cotter on our experts in leading change. I'm sure you've read a lot of their work. Um, and what we've not touched upon yet is what Damon Hughes calls people in your organisation that are cultural architects. They're the ones, they're your tribe, they're your guiding coalition, the ones, your superstars that really get it, and then you can use them to move forward. How, can, how do you go about identifying who they are and empowering them to do the work that you can't do when you're not there, away from the lights? So I, I have a couple of views on this. I think that, um, you know, natural leaders present themselves through the work that they do, the language that they, they choose, um, you know, their, their, how they inspire others um, and, and their, their, um, their loyalty and their um, ability um, and trust. But I think it's really important for us to tap into the people who maybe the naysayers and ask them to lead um, a particular um, professional development or um, to, to pioneer a particular initiative. Because the reason they're naysayers or the reason that they're not your star players is because they're turned off or tuned out. So how do we bring them in? We bring them in by empowering them and, and asking them to lead. And that's how we shift culture. We can't only go to the superstars because the people who aren't the superstars, that's why they're, they're not. So that's, that's a very interesting perspective on that. What if 
they weren't in line with where you wanted to go, would you still go down that process of trying to empower them? Or would you not waste your time invested in them? It's a really hard, this is a real gray area for me here. What was your thoughts on that? I think that that would have to depend on um, if they're not in line, it's not totalitarianism. If they're not in line, I, I want to, to gain in some, um, some introspect into, you know, what their beliefs are um, and, and, and why. And if, if, if it's good for children and it's just different, that might, you know, uh, offer us a, a, an opportunity to explore that pathway. Um, if it's not good for children, it's a no for me. Um, but um, it, it would have to depend on the, the person, the situation, the beliefs and the values. I don't think we can discount people just because they don't have the same philosophy. Um, but we, we need to take some time to explore and see where they are. Yeah, I think you, you, you're talking really clearly there about seeking to understand other people, aren't you? And understand their, yeah. their viewpoints and, and, and where they're sat and their perspective on things. And I, I think that lens on the world idea is really important there. It isn't, if I'm listening correctly to what you're saying, it isn't picking the... Uh, <laughs> Isn't pick, isn't picking the trouble causes and the people causing problems and putting them into leadership positions. It's actually harnessing their strengths and the impact and the sort of influence they have on other people to to listen to what it is and what their views are. And then where there is some parity or some alignment, it's then using that to empower them and let them crack on. But that seeking to understand pit part, sorry, is really important within that, isn't it? It's it cubby, right? Seek to understand, then be understood, and 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 to you know let everyone know that you know we we value every person on the team. Uh, we just some sometimes we need to give some a little more support to help them along the way, um, and then you know I think everybody has something to bring to the table, and we need to be as leaders we need to be open, open-minded to listening, um, and to understanding, like you said. And the open-mindedness, I think, is, is the key there because I, I was listening to something the other day that I thought rang true. If, if you're talking to somebody whose mind does not want to be changed, you're never going to change their mind. It's as simple as that. You can use persuasive language, you can show evidence, you can put it, it the answer right in front of their face. But if they're adamant that the view that you have is wrong or that the view that they have is more superior, it's going to be really difficult to change their mind. So it comes back there to what you've just said, doesn't it? This idea of... Um, and you mentioned it earlier in your recruitment, trying to find people that are open-minded, that are willing to learn, that are willing to look at things from different perspectives. And then you've got half a chance in allowing 1,100 people, such as in your district, to buy into a shared belief that, that moves a, a huge beast of seven schools forward. Yeah, but I think we need to be that way as well. Mm. Because sometimes, you know, we have an idea, we have a belief system, well, we, we all have a belief system. And sometimes the community has a different belief system. And so, so as leaders, we can't shut down the community and say, you're wrong, I'm right. We have to, uh, again, come back to the table and say, okay, community, I want to hear from you because I need to understand why your belief system is this way. Or I need you to understand why my belief system is this way or why I'm making these decisions for our students. 
um, even though we may not agree. And so that in society, especially post pandemic has been a real, um, you know, focus for us as school district leaders, hasn't it? It's, it's interesting because I was watching the news this morning and obviously the World Cup's just about to happen around the corner from us. And you're talking about belief systems clashing. It's a big hoo-ha about alcohol not being served inside stadiums. And it's like the world's ended. And <laughs> it's just a belief system. If that's the belief system in that country where it's been hosted, we abide by that decision. Yeah, it's gone, it's gone mega crazy on it. And it's just understanding difference. It that's is, all it is. It is, but I think there's a layer to that. And I think that... Yeah. I think... And the people who run that country can do whatever they want. But there's a there's a layer to that that is very much a case of, well, with 12 years behind you of knowing you're going to host this World Cup and six years of actively marketing it, why pick now as the timing? And it probably comes and feeds into the, the point that we're trying to get across here, the culture of care and relationships. Listening is important. Seeking to understand is important. Agency is. But timing's really key as well. You know, we... we, we <laughs> yes undermine and contradict everything we're saying with a really poorly timed announcement or or, or whatever it else it is that we're doing it, it needs to be carefully thought out doesn't it i'm so glad that you mentioned that component timing is everything and and as leaders we need to know you know and, and we, we can't be impulsive right we have to be responsive not reactive so we have to know exactly when uh, to say what we need to say or to do what we need to do. So I'm really, really happy that you brought up that component of time. Yeah. Tell me a little bit in terms of an example from your end, Laurie, obviously in, in the role you do as an assistant superintendent in a, a huge school district, I imagine there's always going to be conversations that maybe you could have today, maybe you could have tomorrow, maybe you could have next week. How, how do you find the timing? Does, is that something that just sort of presents itself as a gift to you sometimes and you take those gifts? Is it planned? Is it intentional? Is there a way that you do that specifically? Yeah, I would say sometimes you have to grab the opportunity, um, but most times it's more of a very carefully um, thought out plan of, when to say something or, or when to make a particular announcement. Certainly if it has to do with health and safety of, of our students or staff, you know, that has to be imminent. Um, but, you know, for certain things, you need to look at the big picture and the systems across the district and what's happening across the district and know when um, to, to, to say certain things or to share certain things um, as far as procedures. And, 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 and you mentioned earlier about, um, you know, parting ways and things like you never want to do things before a weekend, before a holiday. You have to be mindful too. It goes back to that humanitarianism, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think most often it's a very, very well thought out. You have to be that way. You have to be that way. We're going to wind it down a bit now, Laurie, and you, you've already done the three leader one from the last podcast. So we've got some changes for the last couple of questions. Now, this whole conversation has been an incredible learning experience just for me and it, and it will be for the listeners. So what, how do you define then what infinite learning means to you, Laurie? And so, uh, yeah, we talk about this, uh, infinite, infinite learning is, is just, it, it's who we are. 
it's who we are as, as leaders and as people. We're always learning every every moment, every day, every every situation is a learning experience. And, and I'm so glad that you asked that because, you know, we, we need to share that message with our faculty, staffs, and students. It's okay to make mistakes because if we learn from the mistakes, it's a, it's a win. So, what, what values do you hold yourself to as a leader, Laurie? You could pick maybe two or three. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Your top three. Just two or three. Values, values, children first, relationships, and trust. What was the last one? Sorry. Trust, trust. Children first, relationships, and trust. Nice. Really nice. You can do the billboard one? Yeah, if you were to have a billboard on a busy street somewhere on the east side of the United States of America, what would it say on it? And it can't say children first relationships. <laughs> it can't say children first relationships and trust. What would it say? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> they said tough one. What would it say? It would say inspire, empower, lead. Inspire, oh. power, and lead. Was that off the top of your head? The premise from my first book, right? And it, it's how I live my life. So amazing. Terrific. Um, Laurie, it's been cracking to chat to you again. Um, I'm so happy to see you both. I'm so grateful to be back with you. And um, and thank you so much for this uh this time. You're very welcome. Can you tell our listeners where they can they can find your publications or they can read a little bit more about the work that you're doing in America? Yeah, sure. Uh, my my uh, my website is Lori Kerner, L-O-R-I-K-O-E-R-N-E-R dot E-D-U. That's it. Let me look it up. Lori Kerner, Lori Kerner, E-D-U dot com. <laughs> I don't usually look myself up. Thankfully, <laughs> so it's Lori Kerner, E-D-U. .com and everything is on there, email, Twitter, uh, Instagram, social media. So that's a one, one-stop shopping. Terrific. Laurie, thanks a lot. And uh, we'll probably speak to you in another 18 months. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. Thanks, guys. Be well. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sensemakers, brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.